Welcome to the fifth quarter. Conversations beyond the X and O's with your hosts, Layson Perkins and Jeff Osterman. Join the journey as they learn from coaches, authors, military leaders, successful entrepreneurs, business people, and motivators. We're truly blessed to have our next guest. Jack Riggin served our country for 20 years as a commander in the U.S. Navy SEALs. He's a leader in many fields and is highly sought after for his insight, knowledge on leadership, culture, team building. Co-founder of Performance Mountain, host of the Dark Side of Elite podcast, husband, proud father, keynote speaker, advocate for many amazing causes. Basically, you're simple, badass with a big heart. Uh, Jack, one, thank you. And before we jump in, maybe take a time out. Is there anything I left or you want to bridge the gap for us? Ha! Um. Well, thanks for the introduction. The badass uh, part with the big heart, I'll go with the big heart and uh, just dumb enough to keep trying. Um, you know what? I, I'm just a regular guy in American, uh, obviously. Uh, but, you know, humanity is always being a big part of what I do. And I think that uh, both my background, uh, you know, before SEAL Team and during it, you know, life is short and my goal is to hopefully make a difference while I'm on this planet, wherever that may be. Um, and so you make a lot of mistakes. I'm a guy that remembers more of the mistakes than the successes. Um, and I think it's, it's because I want to learn from them. And, uh, and so there's a lot of titles that go with it, but I mean, deep down inside, that's just what I'm trying to do, whether it's my family or SEAL team or in consulting or frankly, anybody I just run into, I hope that um, we have a positive exchange and we're better off for knowing each other. Yeah, it's simple. I think if you ask any coach, um, I was 185 and 34, and I could tell you all 34, uh, hopefully I was better for it. But your just approach of making things and making people uh one day at a time, really, really inspiring. But I want to jump in. I'm going quick, and we'll start with Buds. Starting with Buds, can you go to the military and the leadership, one from those in the school and then those that are tasked with being a leader and eliminating some that can't make it, the two roles of leadership there? Um, okay. Bud's basic underwater demolition seal school, uh, obviously served 20 years in that unit, 1998 to 2018. So I went, uh, from the university of Nebraska, uh, graduated in August and, uh, right away in October, I was in that six month selection, which really, uh, semantics extends for a year. Um, my time frame it was a year and a half. Uh, but it's what we call selection again for SEAL team in the United States Navy. And, uh, you know, some would say at least statistically, it's, it's the hardest training in the world, um, with a washout rate of about 80%, give or take. Um, and everybody, the uniqueness of SEAL team and buds is our selection as the officers, which generally considered leaders, Naval Academy graduates, uh, ROTC graduates, 
Um, and then the enlisted men or what we generally call the sailors. Um, we all go to the same training. Um, there's no caste system in it. Um, everybody earns their stripes through that initial selection. And that selection is 95% run by the enlisted men. Um, with a few officers providing oversight, if you will. And so the uniqueness there is that the men that you are one day going to lead as a, as I came into the Navy as an ensign or a, you know, a young officer, a leader, is that they have a big hand in your selection and development, um, both tactically and technically and leadership and ethically and morality um, and as well as obviously the officers um, eventually um, because of that expanded role and, and so in buds you're in a boat crew uh, of about seven or eight with one officer seven eight enlisted guys and uh, and we go through that and it is a very hard selection um, it is very physically rigorous, but what I tell people is that the physical is just there really at that high level or standard um, to create extreme uh, mental discomfort and, and to really push a human being or a group because you do do most of your stuff uh, as a group, hence the name SEAL Team, um, to identify who can keep going when kind of all of their physical characteristics and, and, and really they've reached the breaking point both physically and mentally. And so that they can just give a little more, they can, they can just go that extra inch and then ultimately also do that within uh, what I see in sports teams is the locker room, meaning the group dynamics. So the individual is kind of taken away and the team becomes first and what the team needs and what the goals are become the primary thing from which you will always focus on the rest of your career. And, and so we do that. And again, it's, it is very physical. The standards are high. They're not, they're not to a point where really any male in these days, you know, females can train and get to that standard. Maintaining it is tough. Uh, but ultimately, SEAL Team is a selection of people that are um, uber teammates, uber um, the we instead of the me, and then also can function at a high level of performance under a great distress or physical discomfort and, and mental, um, you know, stress or stress. And so what I always say is we develop really, really awesome teammates and highly mentally resilient people. Unfortunately, in the big kind of Hollywood and, and fanfare, often people are attracted to the Adonis or the look, and often uh, almost everybody who's in the unit and serves, uh, you know, just kind of giggles about that because what you'll see is a cross-section of everybody from America. Jack, you touched on a couple points. Did you... Did you first want to go to BUDS because of the challenge? And then part B, so you prepare physically, you know what to do, you're going to get in the best shape you can, but how do you prepare mentally for what's coming? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and, you know, I think it's changed over the years. 
um, as I came up, I, I knew that I wanted to serve in the military at a young age. I kind of come from a family that has that background dating back to all the adults in World War II. Um, so military talk in my family was prevalent. I wasn't raised in the military, so to speak. I was raised right here in Nebraska, a very just middle-class, small-town kid. Uh, but one of the things that I knew from a young age with all of that background was that, and you know, a lot of people, uh, coach, you would know this, you know, without sports, I would have really struggled getting motivated to go to school and to learn, you know, just the basics of, you know, reading, writing and arithmetic. It just, it didn't interest me. I was a very active young man. But what I always enjoyed in sports, whether it was a sandlot or anything, was the competition. And as I got a little bit older by seventh, eighth grade and into high school, I really liked then the team aspect of the competition. Did I love one-on-one -on -one basketball? You bet. Do I love any type of competition? I still do. But what I realized that was very unique was that that group of people agreeing to try to go accomplish something um, was just a special feeling. And, and it wasn't so much the games. I mean, we won some state championships in different sports. It wasn't the games. It wasn't the memories. It wasn't even practices. It was the locker room. It was the stories that accompanied us on the bus or the, you know, the time that coach barked at everybody. And, you know, you know, we all didn't like it, but we shaped up and, and I, I felt something special there. And I realized that that would end for me, um, you know, and, and above average athletes, a small college athlete, but I wasn't going to get paid to play sports and seal team looked like a hard challenge. You know, I had to go find magazines in the, uh, libraries cause there wasn't much written. Um, it certainly still had its hard reputation that it carries today. And so the real driving force was for me to try to find something that was like being a pro athlete in the sense of compete group of individuals that were focused on team goals instead of individual goals and to just continue really that's what I learned through growing up in sports, that sports mindset. And, and I would tell you on the back end, it really felt like that. I mean, I used to make jokes that I want to outplay Brett Favre. I want to last longer than Brett Favre. Um, and as far as the mental side, at that time, you couldn't really prepare or know. And, and I thought that over the years and 20 years in SEAL team, we may have lost a little bit of an edge in that because of all the fanfare. There's a very, very powerful motivator when you train to the standards that are published physically, but having a little bit of the unknown of what is it going to be like, and then having to work through that um, real time. Instead of what kids would call today, you know, because I consult athletes and they all play video games and they go, well, I have the cheat code. Well, I don't want a cheat code for something like SEAL Team. I, I really don't think I want to cheat code if I'm trying to win an NCAA championship because my experience is there, there is no cheat code. There's hard work. There's determination. There's mistakes and learning. And so there was really no way to prepare, but 
what there was was other like-minded people that you could cluster around like grapes. And some of these for me were Marines. They were SEALs, wannabes. They were Ranger wannabes. And, and we together each and every day could wake up at 4 a.m. We could have a good time. We could ego check each other if we were getting out. And what we were doing back then in preparation was we were working on foundational principles that really transcend success and no matter what you do. And so by the time we met those challenges, well, the foundational principles held up. And the people that didn't do those things or tried the cheat code or blew it off, I mean, they, they, uh, <laughs> they, cru- <laughs> they cr- crushed. They rang the bell. They rang the bell. All right. So individually, your goal is to make it. You want to become a Navy SEAL. It Make it through buds. And teamwork, how you just talked about, is really important. So let me compare it, and it doesn't compare, to a team sport like basketball where you need team success versus a college golf. It's an individual sport, but you want team success. So when you're in your boat, yes, you want your team to succeed. But I think the phrase is, you know, your goal is to make it to tomorrow. So how do you balance on Jack making it tomorrow, but, you know, Layson's kind of shaky, Jeff's really at a low point, but you have to stay on top of your game, almost trying to manage all of that. Yeah, so one of the things is there's obviously every day, actually, at least for probably the first three months, as I recall, there's an individual test, right, that you have to pass. Um, whether it be the obstacle course, whether it be a swim, um, a performance standard, there's there's always something that is individual. And then if we call that three hours out of the day, you know, the other 12 are team. Um, and so, you know, one of the things is that you are always required, you know, throughout your career and even in those very beginning stages to uphold your individual standard. Right. That's what we call the price of admission. So that would be similar to, you know, if you're responsible for dribbling the basketball, then we need you to be able to dribble the basketball. Right. If you're responsible to be a big rebounder, then I need you to get, you know, eight, 10 rebounds a game. And if you can't maintain that, you're not living up to the self standard that we require and either have to, you know, retrain you or, or whatever, or maybe you're not up to, to be in here. Um, And so I think everybody has that part down to a degree. And those type of people that don't get weeded out really quickly by the natural everyday testing. When you mix it with the team performance, um, this is where I think the psychology becomes really interesting is certainly in the early weeks, there are people that are underperforming in the team group and therefore the team is suffering and, and they will, um, they will make sure that if some people are not pulling their weight, that doesn't matter. The entire team's going to suffer because that's how it is in combat. That's how it is in sports, whether we want to admit it or not. And so one of the first hurdles as a leader that you have to understand is that it's a very frustrating dynamic 
Um, but they are under your charge, even at that point. And we don't always have the ability that we sometimes see in business or maybe sports where it's just like, well, I can't do anything with the kids. So I'm getting rid of them. What we're trying to train in is we have to, you know, close ranks and we have to do everything possible to develop that person, even though they're really hurting us. Um, there will be a time and place, right, where we have to make a decision. But what they're looking for is can you close ranks and can you accept uh, mentally and keep giving your best to say six guys with the seventh really hurting you? And will you put the team above self or will you start diming him out? Will you start undermining the group because you just happen to have a bad apple because you might have a bad apple for three hours. You might, I might be the bad apple for a while, right? But what we need to learn in seal team for combat is that that's, that happens. People have bad days. People are going to, on the extreme of performance, uh, bomb out sometimes. But if everybody else can keep performing and pick it up and we don't develop the animosity and the throwing stones at each other and we keep on the goal, on the mission, right, then we bounce back. And so they pressure you with all kinds of games to see if you're the type group or people the leader, the senior leader, an officer and senior enlisted in that boat crew, can they keep a cohesive unit, even if they're trash? And you'd be surprised if you were to go watch butts, say for six weeks, you might, as an outside observer, notice a boat crew that seems to be failing at everything. They're passing their individual tests, but as a team, it looks like they're failing everything. They're coming in last in the races and the paddling events. They're constantly getting remediated and sent down to the surf torture. And, you know, they're all wet and sandy. And you're like, wow, those guys, they're just, they're not what, they're not what SEALs should be. And there's all these thoroughbreds that have been winning everything. And you notice over the course of six weeks, those thoroughbreds might go from six to five, four, and you're still looking at these ragtag guys going, I don't get it. But the ragtag guys haven't quit. They haven't dimed each other out. And they're functioning as a team, even though they're underperforming the standard that we're telling them. But that's really not in that group setting what we're looking for as far as oh, you have to do it. You know, a classic thing in buds is to tell you you need to get something done, say in five minutes. And it can't be done in five minutes, right? It's going to take eight, even for the thoroughbreds. And guess what? You hit that five minute mark and everybody's told, you know, failure. And you'll have guys that will ring the bell right then and there. Just on something like that. And you're like, why? I mean, you're, you, you are trying as hard as you can. You are doing everything you can. And so there's that psychological piece that's put in there. And these very senior instructors and officers who have, you know, this training hasn't changed since 1962. And, and they have logbooks and records. And so they're just trying to identify that. But there is a time when a performance is so bad in an individual. Again, the instructors see that. 
And if the team is functioning and doing what we want and trying to bring that person along, it's not their role necessarily to ostracize and say, you don't have what it takes. And so the instructors will begin to start to identify that and probably move that individual to another crew to see if it's personalities um, and or maybe remediate, you know, give them some extra military instruction to try to help them. Because let's be honest, we want everybody to pass. We would love that. Makes our SEAL team and our military stronger. Um, and, and that's just done in a way that you don't really notice it as a trainee, but as an instructor, you're very attuned to it. And the, the truth is, is that dynamic will carry on all throughout our careers where much like in sports, we have an off season and we train and there's standards, you know, for all of our training, you know, even if I'm a senior commander, I'm, I'm getting graded, I'm getting mentored. I'm, I have a standard I have to uphold. And, uh, and that's probably one of the biggest thing. I know I'm off topic now, but that's probably one of the biggest things people don't understand about SEAL team is, uh, you'll hear a lot of college football athletes, uh, sometimes get upset about the grading, you know, how they grade it out at practice, or maybe one team only grades games, which drives me nuts. Cause I'm like, no, great. Everything, right. You have an opportunity every practice to go into the film room and see what, you know, a learning opportunity is. And, and I struggle with that at first in SEAL team, but you know, after you got used to it, like, I don't know any other way. Like I want constructive criticism. I want people to show me a better way to do it or where I'm weak so that I can improve because we all have bias. Right. And we all, we all think we're great. <laughs> um, and so that's kind of where coaching, teaching, mentoring starts to fit in in SEAL team, if you will. And so uh, you get comfortable with that feedback. And, and ultimately, to be honest, most people self-select out of our program. We don't have to tell a lot of people that it's not for them. Jack, not physical, not physical, but the mental part, to use a poker term, a tell, can you looking within a day, a few days, was there a tell when you look around the room, the barrack of guys that you knew weren't going to make it, were going to ring the bell? Was there something, a sixth sense, a tell that you could figure it out? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, there wasn't a direct tell as far as like when I, think of things today where you read people's body language and expressions and eyes, um, so to speak. And, and that I think always makes it difficult as I assess candidates sometimes today for recommendations and things. And it's, it's very difficult to know until the person gets there, how they're going to perform under that crucible. But when you're there, one of the common denominators that would be a tell is the overly outward cocky, um, which I hate to say it to young athletes out there because I hope there's athletes and coaches that listen to your podcast, but almost everything I see in some athletes of what I call their over exuberance of their skill set and to tell you about it, opposed to show you about it. Um, and that's different from trash talk and confidence, but you know, everybody can do it once. I want sustained performance. That 
cockiness, if you will, conceitedness, generally doesn't end well in our program. And the other one is we have a, and I don't know if it's a military thing, um, but we have a lot of know-it-alls that join the U.S. military or they've heard rumors or, you know, sometimes it's, uh, you know, I've been here before, Johnny told me this and a lot of the know-it-alls are what we used to call like rumor mill guys. Oh, he's got the gouge. He knows the system. He didn't really know the system. And, and unfortunately, some of those people are very influential and, and, and they will kind of get some younger people gravitating towards them and, and they will teach them the wrong things. And, and I want to say this because this is prevalent. I've seen this in athletics and I, I, and it's no different. I've seen it in SEAL team as well. But, you know, that happens a lot with recreational drugs and things like that, where people are influential and, and sometimes bring people into cultures that they don't exactly want to be in. And it's, it's, it's not necessarily a huge problem for some guys. It turns out to be a huge problem, but for other guys, they may get it balanced. Right. But you do see that type of dynamic. Um, I see it when I consult with high level sports teams and, and it can end kind of bad for some people and not others. But that in SEAL team, that kind of influential, I know it, or we can do this and it's not a big deal. That's those two are tells that don't do well in our program. Jack, I want to ask about Hell Week because like you mentioned earlier, there's so many rumors, there's so many stories yeah. out there about that, that evolution, that phase of, of training. Is there a secret? Is there really a secret to, to help a candidate get through it? And number two, what was the best advice you were given uh, it, when you were preparing and getting ready for BUDS uh, to prepare for Hell Week? Yeah, great question. And you're right. There's so much out there. I mean, as a guy that lived through it and then did it for 20 years, um, you know, it, it, it's really – it is – it's so simple that that's why nobody believes guys like us that come out and, and we'll talk about it, but you have to appreciate the simplicity of it and the best advice I got. So the simplicity of hell week, which again, about five and a half, six days straight, I, I think they give you a on and off. Uh, you start on a Sunday, you don't get a rest period until Wednesday night. I think it's about 45 minutes of rest. Um, and then Thursday night, you know, there's, there's a little bit more. Um, and, and so maybe they try to, it's published. I don't know exactly because I was never an instructor. I always stayed in operations. Uh, but you know, about five hours of sleep in that time period. So sleep deprivation is the key there. And you don't do anything in that week that you haven't done the weeks previous. So the military SEAL team in general is always built on a crawl, walk, run methodology. And so, you know, in week one and two, you crawl and you learn everything that's required, you know, three and four, you ramp it up to, you know, uh, what did I say? Crawl, walk, walk, and then, you know, hell week run. So you do everything. You just do it over a six day nonstop period with no sleep. And, uh, the best advice is don't quit. That's it. I mean, it's just an evolution that's don't quit. Um, keep moving. 
keep following basic directions. You've already done everything they're going to ask you to do. Um, and that's the whole goal. Don't quit. Now, the other best advice that is for that program and Hell Week and and in the evolutions, again, that are very physically demanding, which are going to push you to the mental breaking point, is they can't kill you. Legally. You'll hear a lot of guys in our community go around and, and talk about that. You know, um, they legally can't kill you. Now, do accidents happen? They do. And that's tragic. Accidents happen in our training. Accidents happen in all walks of military life. Um, especially combat arms with the nature, but every precaution and operational risk, you know, for the health and well-being of the troops is always taken into account. And we've got to push that edge of that envelope. But when you think about it, when you're in the throes, no matter what they're telling you to your face or what they're making you do, you know, uh, in the ocean or underwater is they can't legally kill you. And why is that an important thing? Because they're trying to elicit fear and they're trying to get your fight or flight system to kick off to the point where you can't manage it anymore and you essentially quit and you, you think the obstacle is too hard to overcome. You think that I don't have anything left. You think and you are succumbed by fear. And so what's one of the most fearful things we all have? It's death. There's no doubt about it. And so when you start to realize that nothing is designed to actually kill you, right? And that everybody there is playing a game to make you into something better than you were when you came in and you have your teammates with you, right? Because the teammate thing is so important because like I said, you are going to be pushed to your worst possible moment and day. And the question is, is, you know, do you and your teammates respect each other enough to pull each other up when we're down. And so I always like to say, it's like this, uh, let me get on camera here. You know, you're going to be up. John's going to be down, right? You got to reach back down and bring John up a little bit. You're both here. Then you're going to go down and then John reach and you go. And I mean, we work in swim buddy pairs. That's our smallest group. You'll never find a seal by himself in anything. And then we get, you know, we just go bigger from that. So those two things, you know, seriously, don't quit. If you make it all the way to hell week, You've, you're, you're, you're pretty much there. Don't quit. Just keep going, keep doing it and realize that that entire week is to mentally exhaust you and get you so that fear overcomes you. And, uh, and they can't do it. They can, they can try, but, uh, they can't do it. And, uh, your fear is really a, a self-made thing in your mind that I think gets a lot of people. I think a lot of people, um, get freaked out by some of the events we do and they can be scary. Um, but one of the best ways to deal with that is to make it fun. Right. So, um, the harder things get, the more you got to find a way to make it fun. And, uh, whether it's talking, whether it's telling jokes, whether it's, uh, making light of a situation, uh, that makes people giggle goes a long way. Nothing I hate worse when I walk into a gym and there's a lot of hard work going on and everybody's quiet because uh, we are not at our optimum if we're, you know, running lines and we're not hooting and hollering because now we're just, we're thinking about the suck factor. And the more you think about the suck factor, the more your performance envelope goes down, the more your energy goes down and before long you start cracking.
Jackie mentioned earlier the importance of leadership within the teams, especially at the level with with the Chiefs, the the senior enlisted. Yeah. How, how do you and for coaches, we always talk about the best teams are the player led teams. Yeah. How, how do you build that structure within the teams, and how can coaches do the same thing with their teams or even their own businesses? Yeah, that's that's a great question. It's something um, at, at Performance Mountain we we try to help people do. Um, certainly in the United States military, there's a little bit of a built-in system. We kind of talked about that. Um, when you talk at the command level or even um, our smallest unit, a squad or a platoon, which is, you know, changes time to time, but we'll call it eight men, 16 men, you know, go up to 32, whatever. Uh, there's, there's always a three dynamic that we use kind of guy that at least in the military is absolutely in charge, senior enlisted, Okay. And then, you know, another enlisted or what in the Navy, we'd call an LPO leading petty officer. So chiefs leading petty officer, and then the officer. And that dynamic goes up, you know, even to an aircraft carrier. Um, So there's always what we call the triad. So let's think about it like a triangle, not the Tex winners triangle offense, but a triangle of leadership. (laughs) Um, And I think that's really important. Because oftentimes, and you guys know this, um, coaching or leading a company, let's just call it leading people. I like to just say, if you have a group of people, it's a team, it's a group, it's people. People generally need leaders. Uh, it, we are like that as human beings. Um, sometimes we fight for leadership roles, depends on whether it's in there. But nonetheless, leadership is lonely. It, it can be a very lonely deal. And so having that counsel set up, obviously, basketball assistant coaches, etc. But when we go down to that next level of where we're grooming and teaching so that player-led teams, because that's a very true dynamic, and that's why in SEAL team operations are pushed all the way down the chain of command because, you know, those guys are in the fight, is something that is not a lot of times what we say is, you know, an overnight thing. And, and a lot of people will say, oh, that guy's a great leader. And he may, you know, nature, right? He may have some great innate nature leadership qualities, guy or gal. Uh, but leadership is a taught thing. You know, nurture is way more effective in leadership development than nature, right? And so my point is, is that anybody can learn the basics if taught. And so, one of the things that I've seen with student athletes or, you know, even pro athletes is we have to guard from the tendency to always think, as my sons would say, the alpha, you know, is based on performance on the court. Performance on the court is something you need or a sports field and you need it in SEAL team, but that doesn't always translate right to leadership. So what we want to do is there is always a pecking order, especially in sports. We tend to identify by the players that are playing the best or have the best, um, you know, abilities. What we've got to get because of that dynamic in sports is we have to get that alpha some training. We have to get them the skill sets, which oftentimes come in the form of communication, just like we're doing. So we have to learn to communicate properly. Um, the basics sometimes of eye contact. So it's easier as I always start with positive communication first. 
So let's learn how to say positive things when we see them of our teammates. And now specifically, I'm talking about, you know, players or the guys that are in the fight. Um, because we all respond, no matter how tough we think we are, we all respond better to that type of communication. And we really respond better when it's a peer, right? Because we have that alpha dog thing going on. And so we tend to want to, uh, but one of the great leadership things right away is if I am that high performer and I want to have the best team, hey, I'm going to start reinforcing positive things I see in my teammates. Great. Now we've got a skill set we're developing. Two, now how do we give constructive criticism without criticizing the individual, right? Or bringing in things that aren't appropriate, whether it be, you know, something you knew about a girlfriend or something you knew about a family. No, we're just talking performance here, right? Like, and so now we're going to talk about the different ways that we can give constructive criticism that's not inciting you know, emotions and we're going to have mistakes. So what I do is I call it leadership um, opportunity. So I say, you're never going to get good at it, especially the constructive criticism if you don't try it. So if you're afraid to say something to a teammate, right? And you never say it, how in the heck can we get better? Right? So we've got to learn to start taking what I call leadership risks which then lead to leadership opportunities for the leaders to begin to learn the skill sets of leading. And oftentimes in sports, it's not much more than communication, meaning it should go without saying you've got to live the standard first. If you want to be a leader, right, we've got to be doing the right things, right? But we also have to understand leaders make mistakes, especially young people. And so what's the number one thing when we make a mistake? We need to admit it. Because you start to lose all credibility when you hide mistakes from teammates and small locker rooms and that. You own up to it. You let everybody know what happened, right? If you have the self-awareness to know how to correct, great. If you don't, that's why you have coaches, mentors, and teachers. You go ask. Here's what I did. This is how I feel about it. I don't know how to self-correct. Boom. Here's where the adults come in and say, all right, here's some things we can think about. Boom. You go back to your teammates. Most people are understanding if you can be humble enough to say, I made a mistake. And sometimes, as you guys know, that might just need to be done between two individuals, right? Sometimes it needs to be done in a group. So communication is very important because we're dealing with the human animal. And so, again, live the standard, you know, and begin to understand how to positively communicate and do that. And the more you do it, like it drives me nuts. I'll use basketball because you guys are basketball guys. I mean, how many opportunities do you think if you are an identified leader on your team, whether you want to be or not, how many opportunities do you think in one basketball practice, two hours, two and a half hours, you have to practice positive communication? It's endless. Endless. And so I go into a gym, we've talked about this, I've got guys, and I just sit there with a notepad. I love watching the basketball, but I'm just looking for those type things. And so I'll be like, Johnny, zero today? Zero? You told me you want to learn to be a better leader, and I've got zero positive comms with a teammate 
Are you telling me the other 12 guys on the floor didn't do anything positive that you as a teammate, you as a leader liked? Uh, okay, we missed a day. We missed an opportunity. And we get a little deeper. We start going, okay, now let's give constructive criticism, right? And you start thinking about that. And I'm like, you know, I watched you shoot 200 three-point shots after practice, right? And you couldn't give me one positive comment of a teammate, right? So it's changing the paradigm of where we can learn these things. Because a lot of guys hear and think, well, we, you know, we're going to do it off the court. No, it, you're here to play basketball or in SEAL team. I'm here to compete and win so I don't die and my team doesn't die and I come home. Or I do an operation mission accomplished and I do it clean, right? Because I don't want civilian casualties. Um, so we've got to practice in the environment for which is our pinnacle. And, and so that's kind of how we do it. And we honestly, we start at the basics. So I'll give you an example for people that are listening. You think the Navy SEALs were big, bad guys, whatever. Okay. So as an officer, ultimately my job in the field is to run the men. I, I have 16 to 32 guns, right? I have weaponry and men that know how to use it best in the world. Of course I have one too. But it's like I used to say, if I'm having to be on that gun, we're in a world of hurt because my job is to maneuver all those other guns in the most tactically advantaged way to give us the best chance to win. And so for officers that have a hard time getting off the gun and maneuvering the force, we give them a stick. We take the gun out of their hand and they run around with a stick until they learn to communicate what we need them to, which is more, you know, tactically and, and operationally at first, but we have those built in hot washes where we come back and we have those opportunities for positive communication and constructive criticism that we do independent of rank. And so we learn to communicate very effectively, both in those learning situations and then throughout our training live. And so um, one of our great sayings is uh, communicate, communicate, communicate. So you can't over communicate in SEAL team. You will never, ever be chastised in SEAL team for over communicating. And if you look as and it's just a society thing right now, and of course it's cell phones and all this stuff, it's, it's hurting young people and their ability to have the opportunity to understand body language and, uh, you know, reaction movements. And, and, but if you tell an athlete who's practiced and trusts his team and, and really explain it in the right way, they already know that inherently they know when guys come off a pick and a certain tweak of a language that he's set in the corner and ready for that pass, or they, they, because they've trained so much, they know that. So, they can tap into that same dynamic with communication, right? They can see when a teammate needs something. Now it's just how do we train them to get there? And that's kind of how we do it. I also, I also want to tie in roles uh, because obviously as coaches on our teams, we, ha we have roles that we, we ask players to mm -hmm. fulfill. In your world, let's say, for example, you're about to breach a room. You've got a stack. Yep. Every man in that stack has a certain role to fill. 
the, the first the breacher cannot take the role of the guy behind him or the right. the third gun in the stack. So how do you how do you teach and, and, and kind of reward fulfilling the roles, accepting the roles, and then getting better at your role? So what's interesting is role acceptance, role development go hand in hand. So we're all trained as SEALs and then we all have subspecialties. So the the platoon, if you will, uh, the troop, you know, has all kinds of subspecialties, right? Um, from sniper to you name breacher, you know, to assault leader, um, to guys that call in JTAC, you know, joint terminal attack controllers that call in airstrikes, to communication specialists, to medics. Um, so everybody has kind of their 1A. Um, and most guys, you know, I, th I think brand new guys, probably 1A, 1B. Um, the longer you go, the more subquals you get. Um, and some become your primary for that cycle. And some kind of drop off maybe at times because somebody else is in that. Um, and so everybody, again, to a standard, responsible for that, trained to that. Um, and it's the price of admission, if you will. Right. I mean, you're if you're going to go play major college basketball, you better enjoy the weight room because it's the price of admission. You better enjoy running in the offseason. It's the price of admission. Um, you know, practice becomes the fun thing. It should. Right. And games become the ultimate fun thing. But. When it comes to the. Situations that you described as we're kind of in the fighter playing the game. Roles are there and always set based on the mission at hand and your skill set. But as things always happen dynamically, right? No plan survives first contact. You know, football coaches always look great. Those first two series, basketball coaches, you know, I've got a couple of game plans and then somebody tweaks an ankle. And so you're always in any, in my experience, any competitive environment, you are always in a constant set of adjustments. And that's no different for the players. And so what has to happen is you have to be ready to accept roles that are a little outside of your comfort zone temporarily, right? Again, for the good of the team. And as the dynamics change again, because it's, it's a constant circle, right? Well, you know, whether we want to count it inside one minute, 10 minutes, whatever, you feel that you know, the adjustments happen. Now you're back into your role. And so to your point, some of it like plays in any sport are gamed out to the kind of micro level of left, right, this, that, and another thing. But at some point in time, it breaks down. And so you're becoming dynamic in the movements and how we adjust to that is again, cross training. So while everybody has their core tasks and then has their subspecialties in the off time, we're constantly training each other up. So I would have rudimentary understanding of breaching say, right? So if something happened to the breacher, each one of us would be able to go up there and finish the job, right? I won't have the science degree in it, but I will have the working man's, you know, understanding of it. And, and by doing that cross training and that healthy respect for everybody's, professional expertise that's a little deeper, we then have 
always say three is two, two is one, one is none. So we'll usually have three backups at least in that expertise. And so we fill that role temporarily. And then, like I said, at that point, things are dynamic. And so we'll try to then move back into a steady state. And so everything focuses on cross-training, role acceptance uh, for the time being, even if it means I'm just doing the best I can because I'm way out of my league. Um, and then as we get back to steady state to gain that tactical advantage, you know, where we're at our best, we do. And, and so I think to your point, it's very easy through our program um, because of how we select and what we look for that guys understand that role development and also role acceptance at any given time is a must have. It's just so critical um, because again, we hold that team thing, that mission in that team it just never wavers. It does. It doesn't waver in how we clean our gear. I mean, when we're done, we clean all the team gear first, then we clean the platoon gear and then we clean, you know, down. And finally I get to my body, I get a shower, you know, and, and if we don't get to the shower, cause we've got to go do something else. There we go. Right. And so, um, and that's a good way to look at it. If you're in team things, because, I have never witnessed a single team sport or combat evolution where a single guy won it. Not even Michael Jordan. It's great. It's great. Thank you for listening to the fifth quarter conversations beyond the X and O's with your hosts, Lason Perkins and Jeff Osterman. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and leave comments on social media. Social media. media. media.